0: Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Zachney, on the newest podcast from Idle Thumbs. This weekend, we're talking about Civilization, Uh, literally with Civilization Beyond Earth, and the end of Civilization, yet again, in Resident Evil HD Zero. We're also going to talk about the reaction to one very special game this week, That Dragon Cancer. So Rob, do you want to start us off with a little talk about uh, Civilization Beyond Earth?
1: Uh, you know, this is something I just—I I started revisiting uh, this week because I just kind of wanted to make sure that what I thought about it was actually true and for reflected reality.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah.
1: I was sort of missing a, a good Civ game. I kind of wanted to try this thing. I, I fired it up again, and so Beyond Earth was just—you know—crudely speaking, it was it was Civ in space. It was it was Civ <laughs> about colonizing a new planet. And the problem is that Beyond Earth, when it came out, was in a lot of ways, uh, a lot like vanilla Civilization V, uh, with a lot of the same problems that Civilization V had at launch. So it was kind of, it was kind of frustrating, I think, for the entire community, for all the fans, uh, to, to sort of see a lot of problems that had been sort of slowly, uh, smoothed away and fixed over the past few years. Suddenly all of it comes roaring back. Sure. So last yeah. year, uh, Firaxis released an expansion, uh, called Rising Tide. And the idea behind Rising Tide was that you were going to be able to use now a lot of aquatic cities. So you could build cities out <laughs> on water tiles, uh, cool. as opposed to just land tiles, uh, which is really a lot like, you know, that, that moment from, um, Spinal Tap, right? Well, well, this it, it goes to eleven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is kind oh, yeah. of you can you can build a you can build a city in 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 Civilization, yeah. But 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 this city's on water, yeah. Uh, so, but as I started playing it, like, they, they did do a lot of cool things. They, they, they found ways to give you a little more feedback about how other AI factions were feeling about you. What was affecting that relationship? Uh, they gave you a few more ways to interact with those other factions. And so I started, like, for the first few hours, I had this sinking feeling because I was like, Oh man, was I just, did I just unfairly dismiss this expansion when it came out? Cause I was still so burned by beyond Earth. And then. You know, like clockwork, I hit the mid game to late game, and suddenly it turned into the most tedious, pointless thing uh you know ever there There's several different victory uh conditions you can choose from, but I would say fully half of them actually encourage you to play in this re- really turtly passive style, mm, sure. which means that a huge portion of a of a game turns into you just clicking and turn again and again and again. It's a very slow-running game, too. So yeah. each, each turn takes like a minute to cycle. It, it gets pretty dull. It was a chance for me to really think about a, a fear I've had lately, uh, which is that in general, with, with regard to 4X games... Uh, which is a a brand of strategy game. Uh, basically, 4X games are are, are, are games like Civ, uh, and the 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 4Xs are uh, expand, explore, exploit, exterminate. Uh, I've really been getting burned out on on all of these games because I find a lot of them kind of clones of each other. They're all kind of cloning uh, Civilization and Master Orion, and I was kind of I, I've sort of been wondering to myself like. You'd be dismissed as an idiot if you looked at a first-person shooter in, like, 2016 and hand-waved it away as, like, a Doom clone, right? Or, like, it's a a Half-Life clone or a Battlefield. (laughs) Like, you couldn't say that. It'd be preposterous. So why do I, like, why do I increasingly find myself, like, writing off a lot of these games as... As Civ clones, as as Master of Orion clones, like maybe it's just I I I've decided I don't like a genre.
0: You know, I I'm not at all an expert in this, but I you know as a complete outsider, I do wonder. Could it be that the aesthetic choices tend to be somewhat similar for this genre? That you know, I I've only really played a lot of Civ Four, uh, basically, and and Rise of Nations. Those are like the two PC strategy games that I have played any amount of in my life. Uh, and and you know, is there something about the sort of moving toys on a map aspect of it that that maybe could be off-putting after playing enough of these games?
1: It's kind of creepy how in line <laughs> you are with, with with the point I was getting towards. Oh, look, okay, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's it's actually great because it, it, it's like maybe okay. Further evidence I might be on the right track <laughs> of something here. Uh, yeah, actually, I think a lot of it does come down to aesthetics because you know i was i was i was working through this with my, my with my three moves ahead buddy uh troy goodfellow uh, earlier today and i was like you know with a lot of shooters or rpgs you put them in a new setting and uh, you, you do something different with it right so like you can put a lot of thematic elements around these games that even if they're mechanically similar to to each other in a lot of cases they can be about wildly different things and they yeah. can succeed uh, on those thematic or or aesthetic choices and i'm not sure i see the same yeah, I'm not sure I see the same diversity of either theme or aesthetic uh, among strategy games that I see among these other genres. And so I think you're exactly right. A lot of these games sort of look like, yeah, you're you're sort of pushing these toys uh, around this highly abstracted map. And the map can be prettier or less pretty, but fundamentally, it's it's kind of the same perspective. Uh, a lot of times the, the these imagined universes, look very similar to each other. So it's, it's not like you're seeing a really stylish interpretation of the world or a possible world. And then I think most damning, if you look at Alpha Centauri and why that game succeeded, despite having huge flaws, hmm. yeah. it's because it did sort of carry off uh, some really hard sci-fi themes. And there's characters that people can remember. And there's philosophical positions that they stake out in the course of that game uh, that, that are memorable and meaningful and they they inform everything you're doing in that world. And that's hugely important. In a lot of these other games, they they can't quite execute that sort of that sort of theming. They they don't have they don't have a strong enough vision. They don't have a cohesive enough vision. The
0: more I I play different kinds of games and enjoy many different kinds of games, the more I'm sort of coming to the conclusion that those hooks, those sort of narrative and thematic hooks really matters so, so much to me. Like I really, that, you know, and, and of course, you know, I've said this before, but everybody plays games for different reasons, of course. You know, different people get different kinds of satisfaction from things. But I really, I want to be 100% in a world. And uh, for me, at least, I know that would be off-putting, <laughs>
1: for sure. Oh, yeah, for me too. And that's and, and I think maybe that's one reason this comes up so often in strategy games, right? Because like strategy games, I think, tend to be designed from the point of view of systems first. Right, and that's yeah. really the appeal of them, uh, but I'm not sure that's I'm not sure that's enough, especially when a lot of the systems end up being really similar to a very small handful of, of famous strategy games. But yeah, I'm I'm the same way in that I kind of and it, it's weird because it, games are such a flawed storytelling medium. Sure, yeah, and, <laughs> and yet, well, I guess it's I'm not it's not a game doesn't necessarily need to tell me a great story. But it does give, need to give me room to explore something cool. Yes. Uh, which is why I think I've never really, and, and this sort of touches on a topic we'll, we'll get to later in the show. Uh, but I think this is why, a lot of the whole real game discussion tends to go right past me because a lot of things sure. I really enjoy, I'm not remotely in it for the mechanics or the test of my skill. Like, one of my favorite games of all time was was The Last Express. So at the age of, you know, totally. at the age of, like, 10, I was basically yeah. playing a walking simulator confined in a linear train uh, where, like, 90% of what you do <laughs> would sit be sit around and listen to people talk. Um, so, yeah, but... Anyway, so this is where I've ended up with with Beyond Earth. It was this sort of crystallizing moment uh, for me. Uh, a, a lot of the imitation just ends up feeling uh, like exactly that, where you are just sort of taking old ideas and, and sort of refreshing them and updating updating them for for a new era, rather than uh, sort of creating a, a new body of work.
0: You are right on the money. I, I actually, having this discussion, I am thinking about a game that really did it for me, even though I am not always, uh, you know, super into anything. Uh, you would probably call a strategy game but i i really loved the banner saga a couple of years oh, ago yeah. uh i loved it and i know that it's not the deepest strategy game by any means but it it has you know some fairly robust mechanics in terms of uh you know you have your sort of defense stat and your offense stat and it's it's strength and defense i think are the two sort of stats you have to manage for every unit and but but the whole the entire reason you play the Banner Saga isn't necessarily for that. It's it's for this sweeping, beautiful story, this sort of beautiful '50s Disney-esque uh, animation, this this bizarre world of the Vikings where the the sun never goes down, and this you know this other forces is, is in the world and that
1: austin wintory soundtrack
0: yes oh my god just the everything about that game really drew me into the game I, i'm thinking about it again it did actually sort of get re-released uh in on consoles this week too i, I just sort oh really of edited, yeah i just edited a, a review of it from one of my freelancers uh who again loved the game and and was very drawn into that world well, and, and we
1: did a three moves ahead on that yes actually, we did that's uh, right that's right ago. you came on the show to talk about it and actually that was a game that i was thinking about this week sure because uh, sure. i was sort of thinking about games that sort of maybe weren't necessarily like the biggest or deepest strategy games but i just didn't care right i, I loved Absolutely. them anyway yeah. and yeah banner banner saga was exactly like it, it was exhibit a on that list because totally yeah i i think you could the the combat system is interesting i'm not sure you could say it's great
0: yeah yeah i i would agree with that
1: <laughs> but it's it's memorable uh but more importantly that's not really why you're there you're you're just yeah you're just soaking up this incredibly beautiful uh and tying into earlier shows incredibly sad uh world yep,
0: of course <laughs> the you know the sado show here yeah, yeah <laughs> now there's a sequel i think
1: coming out this year right there is
0: like- yes uh I don't think there's a release date just yet, but it's definitely 2016. That's what, you know, the folks at uh, Stoic Studios have been saying. So
1: Yeah, that's good, because that, that is a game that kind of leaves you off uh, in the middle of... Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't resolve anything you want resolved uh, by the end of that game. But yeah, it's, it's a memorable ride. And I think that's... Yeah, I think that sort of style is, is just something I want to see more of uh, in strategy studios. And maybe... Uh, maybe when these teams approach, maybe when a lot of developers approach making strategy games, maybe there's an overemphasis at first in on uh on things like creating systems and sure. aesthetics and theme. Maybe uh take a back seat, and increasingly, I think maybe that's a little bit backwards. Danielle, you were you were talking about uh you know the 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 end of civilizations, the sure. end times,
0: yeah. <laughs> Again, um, well, also revisiting something from the past, although this one is a bit further in the past. Uh, you know, it feels like so many of the games uh, coming out the last couple of weeks have been sort of HD remakes or remasters or you know, however you you want to put it. Um, but right now I'm playing Resident Evil Zero HD, which is a really fun sort of offbeat uh, GameCube game, actually, a very, very early GameCube game, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in, in the sort of, you know late 90s i believe this was actually the very early 2000s but it feels it has that late 90s sort of feeling to it you know like the code veronica the sort of middle years of the resident evil series where things were totally just weird like they were just sort of just throwing ideas out in in these games but in a in a really sort of fun and funky and kooky kind of way that fits absolutely with the resident evil uh, the whole aesthetic of both gothic horror and zombies and techno thriller, sort of at the same time. Uh, so this game, uh, you, you're at least you begin. I, I'm still very early on in the game, uh, but it, I, I remember playing it way back uh, on the GameCube, actually. So uh, I'm sort of reliving some of those memories. This one is sort of everybody remembers it as the one on the train, and it's in like the the South in America, basically. And you're switching between two characters on this train. You know, it's it's funny you were talking about uh, the Last Express. This is sort of like '90s goth Last Express in a lot of ways because it's just <laughs> on the train with zombies and a lot of melodrama is happening because it's a Resident Evil game. I I'm having a lot of fun. I I loved these games. I love how cheesy they are. I you know I didn't always remember sort of how cheesy they were because I was you know very young when I was playing these games. You know, the original Resident Evil came out when I was. 12 or 13 I think so I you know I I just took it at face value at the time and then last year when the when the uh HD remake came out and I played it again I was like oh man this is such a campy awesome piece of crap you know it's, like, it's in terms hard to of go back to that
1: first game too yeah, like, the jump between resident <laughs> evil and resident evil 2 in terms of just like basic things like the way characters moved and like oh, the view yeah. gave you on the action is night and day like resident oh, yeah. evil is actively trying to get you killed just by virtue of how clunky it is
0: always yeah yeah it it, it helped a lot the the re-release last year they actually gave you um <laughs> An improved control scheme so you can actually play it like a modern game this this current game that i'm playing has the same exact option you can opt for the tank controls if you are you know a purist i guess or if you hate your life but um they are they are a little bit uh more user friendly at this point but they're still certainly designed in the same way where it's you know oh camera angle yeah (laughs) although the controls are really
1: part of the horror Right, like it, oh, yeah. it, and that's the thing, uh. right? The bad controls create that zombie move mo- movie moment, right? Where like your characters aren't superheroes; they're right. people who like get like they panic, they freak out, they like drop their guns. They're actually they-
0: looking for their gun yeah. in their pocket, being like, "Oh shit! Oh shit! You know, <laughs> oh I gotta, I gotta refi- you know, I gotta reload my gun." And you're literally doing that in <laughs> in real life on the controller. It's you know.
1: So hang on. Yeah. So I, I'm not. This is a dangerous question to ask, but oh, okay. where exactly in the in the rich lore of Resident Evil oh, man. does Resident Evil Zero uh, take place? Because because well. <laughs> I because roughly like my 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 really crappy understanding of that entire series is Resident Evil where Resident Evil comes out. Hey, where's Wesker? Oh, it turns out Wesker's bad. And then a yep. whole bunch of stuff happens. And then later games are Resident Evil, but in increasingly exotic and racially problematic settings. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, so Resident Evil Zero is yeah, it's set in a train of the American South. Do I gather it's a prequel?
0: It is. I mean it's it's in okay. It's set two hours after the initial outbreak. Uh, it's sort of the events at the mansion in Resident Evil One, so it's sort of like okay. concurrent with Resident Evil One. So it's very, it's it's in the beginning of the rich, <laughs> rich and fascinating tapestry that you might call the Resident Evil uh, lore. Yeah, it's you know, I I enjoy it so much, especially the cutscenes and the cheese. I I just sit there and I want to eat popcorn and you know enjoy the cheese for what it is. Um, you know, certainly a lot of this is, uh, you know, sort of feeling nostalgic about the older games and, and sort of going back to the 90s where this was the edgiest thing. Man, how scary was a zombie when it, you know, jumped out at you or the dogs when they jumped out at you and all that, you know, all that good stuff. Uh,
1: I sometimes <laughs> wonder it's whether those deepest, moments were even real. Like, because yeah. I remember Resident Evil was one of those games that, because this was like during the second great console war. Right when oh yeah,
0: this is original PlayStation. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I remember, like, I had a friend who was like the biggest PlayStation evangelical, uh, which (laughs) which was a faction as 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 sort of diehard as like Jehovah's Witnesses, really. Oh, for sure. Uh, But I remember, like, he he was showing me and my friend. I was a PC gamer. My friend was a Nintendo uh, gamer, and we all sort of had our allegiances. And he was like, "No, check this out. This is this is the future." (laughs) <laughs> and the game he showed us uh was Resident Evil. And he's like pretty amazing, huh? And my my other friend, my Nintendo buddy and I are staring at each other like out of the corner of our eyes, like, what, what the hell is this? 'Cause like <laughs> yeah. it, it was 'cause even at the time, even at the time, it was sort of the campiest shit. Oh, yeah. Uh and, and so like a lot of those moments I think really resonated for for a, a certain type of person who was really eager to buy in. But oh, yeah. I remember even at the time that first that first scene in Resident Evil where uh, the camera slowly comes up from behind the zombie is it's <laughs> chowing down on a body, and you hear those wet meaty sound effects. Uh, but I remember, like even at the time, being like, "Ah, oh, damn, this is." <laughs> this is pretty dumb.
0: It's corny. Yeah. yeah. It, it's corny is that I, I actually played two before I played one. So my very first Resident Evil game that I, I actually played a significant amount of was, you know, two on the original PlayStation. So I was, you know, a freshman in high school or whatever I was at that time. And I remember I played a little of it and I was... Maybe this has to do with my personality, but, you know, this might shock you. I'm kind of a dramatic, enthusiastic person. Um, I know it's shocking. Yeah. And I was very much like, whoa, the zombies really go after you. That was my biggest thing at the time. And I got so into it, even though I didn't have a PlayStation. I had I had played it on sort of like my friend's PlayStation. I had a strategy guide. It was it was one of those uh, old magazines that was like mostly like walkthroughs.
1: Yeah.
0: I, do you remember those? Okay. They were like, you know a physical magazine that, you know, oh, every yeah. month would and, have part one of the strategy. And used to pay one crazy strategy. well or so I've heard. Yeah, apparently. I've, it. Oh my God. A I hear old freelancers talk about that? like, yeah, like yeah.
1: paying, like paying off like a few months worth of their mortgage on a strategy guide. Like, oh, oh, man. oh, to have been around in those days.
0: Oh, I know. Seriously. And they, and they spread them out too. It was always like two issues, you know, part one of the strategy guide was in issue, you know, your March issue and then your April issue, whatever. I, was so into the game that I actually sort of read, you know, I played a little part of it and then I read the rest of the story of the game and sort of the the playing of the game in this strategy guide. Almost the way I guess you would do now and, you know, nowadays uh, you would watch a a playthrough on YouTube or something. But this was the best we had in 1998 and I remember doing that and now I think of it and I'm like, wow, I was a dork. That was... (laughs) So, let me ask you: Like, yeah. you sort
1: of focused on the nostalgia here. I'm, I'm just curious, as you know, as we wrap this up. Like, so are you like, are, do you recommend Resident Evil Zero <laughs> HD? Like, is it succeeding for you on any level other than sort of kitschy nostalgia, like restoring your youth to you, or, or is there something that's resonating today uh, about this game? I mean,
0: there's nothing particularly, in you know. The story itself, I, I wouldn't recommend beyond the Kishi stuff. But I actually think, frankly, that the gameplay was, was fairly innovative at the time and still pretty cool because you're sort of switching between these two characters at different parts of the train. You know, You're solving puzzles. Somebody has to do A while you're off doing B, and then you kind of switch in between. I still think that's pretty cool, and there aren't a ton of sort of... Well there there aren't a ton of survival horror games out now anyways, but there were very few survival horror games that were doing anything with the formula so i I would actually recommend it uh for for you know sort of for those purposes I think it's fun I think it's 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 a cool sort of twist on that that old nostalgic formula with all the cheese that I enjoy and I think it's actually really well paced as well that's something that was a huge issue in some of those early games but so far, so good. The first sort of few hours, I feel, are very, very well-balanced with sort of the puzzle solving, with the awkward combat, and with the, uh, you know, awesome cutscenes.
1: And I'm sorry, are you playing this on the Wii U?
0: I am playing this on uh, the Xbox One, actually. Okay. okay. Yeah. It looks, it looks good. You know, it's certainly an up of a, a game that was not in HD, but it, yeah, it still looks good because it was still one of those sort of pre-rendered games, so everything actually looks fairly crisp. Uh, yeah. as you're as you're going through basically,
1: so it's actually amazing how well a lot of those games have held up, right Like yeah. I still think the original Siberia is one of the coolest looking like adventure games ever made, uh despite it being twenty years old at at this point
0: yeah it's It's always all about that art direction If somebody really knew what they were doing with the, with what they had it was it'll it'll look good forever. I still think the original Donkey Kong Country games are beautiful, but hey, that's me. <laughs>
1: let me do do a shot as uh, Donkey Kong Country comes out.
0: I need to mention it in every podcast. Well, there is a game also, Rob, this week that came out uh, on a less, I I suppose, a a less uh, overwhelmingly positive note. uh, But it's certainly a game that, that a lot of folks thought was very important. And the reaction to it has been very, very interesting. And that game is That Dragon Cancer. So this was a game made by a family who who actually lost their young son uh largely it's it's the developers are sort of the family members as well as a few other uh, contractors and it's it's a very sort of personal game it's it's about um their time with their with their young son who I believe died at a, a very young age it's very very yeah. difficult emotional material certainly um and sort of a a bit of a free form mix of of gameplay styles you're exploring you are you know you're talking there are scenes where you're sort of uh, there, there, are scenes where you're, the child playing with ducks, you know, all sorts of stuff is kind of going on. So it's a little bit of a mishmash of things, which, um, when, when I, uh, edited the review of this game for, uh, my website, it, you know, the person who reviewed it, uh, Riley, uh, Maclid thought, you know, this is very emotionally honest. If people will probably feel a, a sort of ridiculous mix of emotions going through something like this. So that's sort of the game in a nutshell, but the, uh, there's been a lot of backlash against it, actually, uh, sort of on Steam. Some folks are upset that people have made this game. They're not sure why it would be a game. They're not sure why people would uh, make such a thing. So it's it's been interesting to sort of see that reaction from folks.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the that's the thing that jumped out of me because, like, I think any of us could have predicted that. The sort of not a real game crowd would show up, sure of course, uh, because yeah. that's a conversation that happens just about every game uh that doesn't sort of fit into a a uh classic genre mold,
0: yeah yeah, uh,
1: but you know what what sort of got me looking at this was um so so tom francis uh, who's who's an ex pc gamer writer uh also a designer of gunpoint uh he he was he posted on on Twitter uh today that What really struck him, and it is an interesting point, is that a lot of people who had an issue with this game had an issue with it because of its subject matter. That people were upset because they thought it was exploitative and insensitive uh, to make sort of a raw, emotionally honest game like (laughs) this. It was just sort of interesting to me to see a lot of people... Who sincerely didn't get why a game like this would exist, or how you could make a game like this with anything other than the most crass, exploitative motives uh, behind it. I think it's a sign of not necessarily games' immaturity as a medium, but the fact that so few games have shaped audience expectations for anything other than sort of playful uh diversionary enjoyment right that, that video game, game
0: ass video games yeah yeah, yeah.
1: It, it is just a game it is just for fun and when you encounter a game with motivations beyond that right when, and i think it's it, a lot of this will come up uh, with regard to uh games that you call empathy games right where they want yeah. to sort of put you uh, in someone's uh, shoes give you someone's emotional perspective and, and sort of force you to confront those feelings uh, you see people get really confused and in this case really angry uh, about it it's almost like because the game succeeded at being affecting b- because yeah. the game did evoke these feelings uh, that seemed to make people more likely to lash out
0: you know, clearly, even if these folks wanted to make some money on this game, even if they did, I, I I can't imagine how that could possibly be a bad thing, given how much treatment costs for folks. And, you know, it's certainly like we, we live in this capitalist culture where everybody's sort of going after money and things like basic health care are not provided to citizens, which, you know, maybe I think they should be. but. I, why, why would it be a bad thing? They, if somebody went through hell and wanted to make an experience about it and they wanted to, you know, continue to make a living and, and be able to live their lives, I, I don't think that is a bad thing. Well, I, as I understand it, there's a lot to do in this game with faith and, and sort of a faith in God and a faith, you know, in your religion and, and sort of believing that things can, can be okay one day, no matter what you go through, that sort of thing. I, I, I like to believe that, that, you know that game was made with love and 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 care, and I've been led to believe that it has been so it, it does make me sad when you know that's the reaction from so many people
1: i sort- I sort of heard you almost use like a utilitarian argument there where like this is a game that can help you come to terms with it i'm not, I'm not sure I haven't played the game right like i so I don't know, but I can sort of see a lot of art, a lot of things that evoke feelings don't necessarily may help you come to terms with them right like a lot of times things just force you to confront or relive things you you just as soon try to forget because there's no there's no getting over it there's no making it better uh sometimes understanding doesn't really help uh and and so you know that's and that's the thing like this game and i don't know this game may not have any other ambition beyond capturing an experience right sure yeah and for a lot of people, that experience isn't—it's
0: not something they want captured.
1: No, I, I think if you've been through anything like uh, you know, like the loss of loss of a child, uh, then that's that's something that's that's very hard to deal with. And a game like this may not might not have any therapeutic value. It just becomes uh, you know j- just sort of um, salt in an, salt in a wound. Uh, so I mean, I guess. I, you know, I, I I can sort of see.
0: <laughs> that's that's more than fair, and more than valid. I, I certainly think, <laughs> um, I certainly think anybody's feelings on this are valid as long as they are not, you know, the just general not a game crowd being uh, obnoxious about, uh, you know, sort of whether or not a, a personal experience in playable format is valid, you know, as or or needs to be validated by them, basically. Um, you know, it's, it's been a, it's been a tough week and, and I appreciate that, that folks have had a hard time. Well, I think that's probably a really good place to end the, uh, we have an email here, uh, from David from Sydney. He says, Hey, Idle Weekend. I just started listening to the show, so I'm a little behind. Sorry. This is a mostly a long winded statement with a tactile question at the end, but anyway, First episode, Danielle talked about playing depressing games or morose games uh, when she was feeling depressed. I do this also. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I, too, have had to deal with depression for most of my adolescent and now young adult life. It's weird to say that I enjoy doing or experiencing depressing things when depressed, but I definitely think it helps me cope with what I'm currently feeling. Sometimes I even set aside a game like The Walking Dead for a future time where I will be depressed and in the right mood to play it. Of course, I understand how weird that must sound to some people. Editorializing here, I don't think that sounds weird at all, David.
1: That, that <laughs> is email. management, my friend.
0: Uh, sorry, I was just saying. <laughs> all right, all right, back to the email. Of course, I think too much of anything can be a bad thing. I've had times where all I would consume was depressing media, and that certainly wasn't helping me. Sometimes you get out of a funk, you just really need to force yourself to consume something completely different. A good, lighthearted romp game is hard to come by, though. Any suggestions? It's from David from Sydney.
1: May I refer you to the collected works of Tim Schaefer?
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and, totally. and this is the question
1: I actually needed uh, following the <laughs> conversation we I just had. I thought added. so,
0: too. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely.
1: No, because actually this week, and, and sort of talking about, you know, going back to the HD remakes, this week, because <laughs> it was free on PlayStation Plus, uh, I, I finally got around to playing the, uh, the remastered Grim Fandango.
0: Oh, awesome. Yeah.
1: And... I think Grim Fandango might be my favorite example of it, but I think it's a thread that runs through a lot of Tim Schafer's games, uh, which is that he opens these portals into these worlds of just like pure delight and imagination. And I find it... Not not that that there can be pathos in these worlds, but I just find them incredibly uplifting to sort of spend time in these imaginative playgrounds uh and it's it's enough to make me overlook uh, a lot of frustrating puzzles uh <laughs> sure. sometimes sort of ill-thought-out mechanics whatever uh but uh, but yeah when when i need when i need something to sort of pick me up and remind me of all that's good in the world i go <laughs> to a game like grim fandango
0: yeah i you stole my answer a little bit because my, my answer was going to be the happiest game I've ever played in my life was a Costume Quest. <laughs> just the happiest little game that's just about imagination and Halloween and loving Halloween and getting candy and fighting monsters. And it 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 always, always takes me. I know, yes, that is a seasonal game. So my, my backup would be Brutal Legend, which is another game that is Really fun and wacky and weird, and and does also have some pathos to it a little bit if you sort of get into the story, uh, but that's a world I will always want to be in. It's just imaginative and and, and very, very tongue in cheek in a lot of ways. So it it doesn't feel you know it doesn't feel saccharine uh the way that that a lot of other you know quote unquote sort of happy or you know sort of friendly experiences can be.
1: No, I I think part of that is because just bring up costume quest remind me of, of of psychonauts as well yeah i think
0: my favorite game of all time for any of those listening. yeah they're not always a <laughs> pick
1: me up because there's points yeah. in that game that will will have you honestly contemplating murder yes. um <laughs> just <'cause>, absolutely yeah <laughs> but i i think tim shay like writing children is not an easy thing to do right yeah. and like Tim and Tim Schaefer and uh on on Psychonauts, I think his collaborator was Eric Wolpaw. Um they just had this fantastic ear for it, uh where the characters are like recognizably kids, but they're not simplistic the way a lot of like child characters often are in yeah. in works of fiction. They are these <laughs> they're they these like three dimensional uh you know creations with with all the with all the drama with all the confusion with all the angst uh, that comes with being a kid uh and, and but but shot through with this really great writing and yeah uh I, I think that's I I think that's uh a, a great recommendation any any of his any of his games I think really uh really fit that bill.
0: Yeah, and and one other suggestion I would give even though it's not uh necessarily just a lighthearted romp, but it is a game that I always it it always sort of makes me feel uh joyous and it's mo- mostly because of just sort of the feeling of movement and the music and it, that is dust force. I think it's on basically every platform. It's just a just a platformer where you are a, a cool janitor uh, and your entire job is just cleaning up a mess. Like there's no violence to it and you're in these sort of beautiful, interesting little worlds and you're just sort of running around cleaning up a mess to the just most beautiful, chill, happy kind of music. That's a really good go-to. And for non-video games media, I have, I have one last suggestion and this is maybe a little bit of a, you know, a wink and nod suggestion, but there is a documentary on YouTube Uh, It was attached to the Phantom Menace, the making of the Phantom Menace. It's about 70 minutes long, and it is just the most hilariously wonderful piece of joy uh, that (laughs) exists (laughs) on, like... You know, it, it almost reads sort of like a mockumentary about the making of this movie, but nobody who was in Is this it knew. the
1: documentary with that really awkward storyboarding sequence?
0: Oh, yes. Where uh, George Lucas comes in and, <coughs> you know, an artist has prepared the storyboards. And this is 1997. Everybody's like, oh, Star Wars is, you know, the, the greatest thing of all time. This will, you know, we're making a new sequel. I mean, this is going to be the just the greatest thing. And George is a, is a genius. He comes in with markers and just scribbles on these on these storyboards and every artist in the room has this this very terrified look this pained look of terror like oh, oh no well he's a genius he must know what he's doing Uh, there's extended sequences about putting together the Jar Jar costume everything. Well, And that's also the sequence
1: the storyboarding sequence is really where he starts to lay out his vision for what the new trilogy is going to be. And so I think it's the moment where you start to (laughs) realize, you see a lot of people that sort of, that realization right? It is is almost like Christopher Guest like. All these other characters are having this moment characters, they're people, they're people who actually worked (laughs) on, on episode one through three. All these people are just sort of like you see this realization, like oh shit, like what what have we gotten into? <laughs> what this are we doing? <laughs> this isn't the Star Wars I thought it would be. What like what, like George's vision is insane.
0: It's, uh, it's great. Oh, it's delightful. I have seriously, honestly, like especially this past year has been a little, you know, there have been some ups and downs. I, I there are a lot of life changes and so on and so forth. I have watched it like five times in the last year. The whole thing, just put it on in the background when I'm having a bad day, and it will always bring a smile to my face. <laughs> Guaranteed. Moving right along, here is a question from Peter Freeman. Hey, Idle Weekend crew, this question's a bit of an odd one. Not exactly in the gaming wheelhouse, though it can certainly apply. I was curious, what are your thoughts? Oh, sorry, what your thoughts were on looking up someone who is a uh, looking up to someone rather who is a good person in all areas except one, but that area is a huge one. Take Ronda Rousey, for example. She's a nerd, a fighter, a family woman, and so on and so forth. It's hard to not want to respect her, and I did for some time. But then she made some extremely transphobic comments in regards to fellow female fighter, Fallon Fox. And that kind of shattered my trust in her. I was uh, very conflicted to respect someone who could be so blind about something I really believe in, equality. So, I suppose my ultimate question is how do you guys deal with flaws of your idols? Is it okay to still respect someone, even if some of their beliefs are overall harmful to a set of people? Thanks. Love the new show. Hope you have a wonderful new year. From Peter Freeman. Oh, man. That's my example, actually. That's my. I have the same exact sort of experience uh, with Rhonda Rousey. She's someone who I think has done so much for women in fighting we we wouldn't be in the UFC if it weren't for Ronda we wouldn't be we you know sort of just saying in general women and like women who are athletes and uh involved in combat sports w- wouldn't have these career prospects even if it weren't for Ronda Rousey and what she's done for the sport and she's seen seemed in every other interview yeah to be like a, a pretty cool person who has you know is kind of fans and and generally like you know funny and nice and all sorts of other good stuff but then she said that you know she said something it was really bad um, you know there, at one point she made sort of milder comments that were still not great about uh, you know she said something to the effect I'm paraphrasing but I, I looked this up it was something to the effect of she wouldn't want to face a woman fighter who went through puberty as uh, identifying as a male uh, which was pretty bad already because it's like oh, yeah, don't and then she said something really 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 offensive to the effect of, you know, chopping off a body part, that sort of thing. Really gross, uh, not a nice thing to say. Um yeah, it, it's it's really really damn hard uh to still respect somebody who who just says something like that and 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 hasn't apologized for it yet. That that's that's the thing for me. I I will I will respect someone who makes a mistake and clarifies it, and actually takes active steps to rectify that mistake. If you say something really terrible, but you apologize for it properly and mean it and do something about it, I that can go a long way for me to sort of regain somebody's respect. But it's that's a tough one. That's a really, really, really tough one. And I, I feel like this kind of goes for... Everybody. Now, This the other side of this, obviously, is, is nobody's perfect. Everybody said something really stupid and harmful at some point in their life. I have said a million stupid and terrible and harmful things that, you know, when I was younger or, or less educated about something that I, you know, wish I could go back in time and sort of smack myself up the head for. Um, but I, I, I think it's <laughs> sort of owning up to your mistakes and, and really meaning it when when you say you're sorry kind of is the only answer to that
1: yeah and yet um you know so here's here's my thing, which is one, this is actually a good example of why increasingly i just i recommend like don't have idols yep. um, like, you know don't just don't meet your heroes, but idolizing people i I just feel like it rarely rarely works out in the long run because yeah. it turns out it's very very rare that a whole lot of virtues reside in one person uh you will you know i mean especially when you're dealing with someone like ronda rousey is the best competitor uh in a sport that is ultimately one of the
0: best now but yes yeah Uh, Yeah.
1: well well, but you know what i mean like yeah of course like her run is not going to be equaled for for a long time yeah absolutely um But ultimately you're talking about a sport that was about beating the ever-living crap out of other people.
0: That's certainly true.
1: And what she demonstrated by by accomplishing what she accomplished was an ability to train incredibly hard, uh, you know, absorb an incredible amount of punishment and then become a better fighter than than a lot of the women, than than pretty much all the women uh she faced for for an incredibly incredibly long time. And that tells you some things about her, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot about who she is as a person, necessarily, right? And yeah. it, it seems a little—it is, it, you know, it—it's—it's it's okay to admire like some of the virtues she demonstrated during that rise, but you will, you'll, you'll, you're, you're asking increasingly much when you then also expect those people to be role models in a lot of other respects. Uh, and and yeah. so, like, that's not no, that, that's not to make an apology for her, but it is to say that I think increasingly you just, like, idolizing a person is, is a really dicey proposition. And I actually, I think it's one reason why people end up defending the reputations of people who ultimately turn out to be very bad. Because if you sure. idolize someone, you're invested in protecting that idealized version of them. What I find easy to admire about Ronda Rousey is the th- you know the things she demonstrated while becoming the best best female MMA fighter in the world, uh, and I don't look to her for for more than that, right? Um, and I'm like, by God, I I certainly wish that she hadn't revealed yeah. that kind of bigotry.
0: People who don't know better will listen to her and think shitty things, honestly, about about trans people because of it. And that does real damage to real people's lives. I'm all for, you know, realistically, I don't think anyone should be idolized, but I I know that they will be. And I'm all for sort of socially pushing for for people to just, damn it, just do better.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but so then... I have all these people that I admire parts of what they've accomplished. Sure. But there's also skeletons in the closet or things that give you tremendous amounts of pause, right? Like what do you do with people like that? Like do you like like to 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 what extent do you let your your problems with someone having said or done something uh unacceptable uh also then affect your views on on their work, on you know, on on sure. on, on the career and the on the on the on the part of their on the part of their uh, public persona that that brought them to uh brought them to notoriety.
0: For me personally, I I you know I was happy Holly Holm knocked her out for that reason. I'll be totally honest, like it it was one of those like okay, cool, you know you you did a bad thing and and I'm not unhappy that that you were sort of knocked off your throne for that reason. It's funny, but I I try to have heroes, so to speak, that are fictional people <laughs> because of this reason. Because I can just sort of in my head have something like, "All right, I'm going to be like this today. I'm going to try to do but, something like this today." But,
1: but didn't we see that exact thing then when uh, Ghost at a Watchman came out, where it was like, <laughs> "Wait, Atticus was this?" And you, you saw the same thing now, like even setting aside all the problems people had with this with sudden discovery of this of this new novel.
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly that's that's it's realistic. It's realistic that people are are, are shitty in a lot of ways. It's realistic that people are going to do the wrong thing in a lot of ways. I think the help that that any sort of idol you can have in a moment of of weakness of of the you know the reason why people wear those bracelets the what would Jesus do bracelets right that's probably not to be every moment of your life but it's sort of all right you're in a really horrible situation now you have to think about what you would do and and who you would idolize there's no such thing as a human being that'll ever be a a good idol or, or perfect idol or you know great even basically so. It kind of comes down to you got to pick and choose, and you just gotta do what you got to do to get to the end of the day. Personally, it's completely all down to what choice can I make to be better and and do better and 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 not be a piece of shit. That's that's sort of I should wear a bracelet that just says <laughs> "How do I not be a piece of shit?" Like <laughs> an acronym of that, you know, basically, because it's easier to be a piece of shit in most situations. Let's be honest.
1: Alright, so our last email is from Jeff Ray Turner, Turner on the Idle Forums. Nice. He writes, what do you think a hashtag content uh, goatee game of the year list should (laughs) attempt to accomplish? Uh, Does having an audience impact the way you might think about your own games of the year?
0: You know, personally, I really like to have a list that has a lot of variety on it. I... Partially because I I feel like that sort of encompasses everything you know it encompasses everything that I enjoy I like things that are big budget I think things that are tiny and personal you know I like the whole range of games so I, I when I make my goatee list I I don't you know consciously say well you know. Quota, I don't have enough indie games on this, so I gotta throw on another indie game. Nothing like that. But I throw another indie on the burner, you know. Um no, I just I just like to see I'm personally happy when I see a list with a lot of just different kinds of experiences on it, you know. Uh so that's that's part of what made me happy about Polygon's list last year was it just had great range. Stuff from all all corners. All you know, the best thing in all these different kinds of categories, I suppose is one way of looking at it.
1: It's interesting. I think with games of the year, I generally want a list that's going to both generate a lot of discussion, but maybe also uh, give its due to games that were easy to overlook. Um, Like, (laughs) I saw this thing on Twitter, where whenever (laughs) I see somebody talking about Kane and Lynch 1 or 2... Whenever I see those two weird kind of janky shooters come up, I have to parachute into the conversation immediately <laughs> and be like, no man Kane and Lynch were awesome, that game rocked, doesn't matter which one by the way, each one had, had things that made it really special and, and memorable, but what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to illustrate here is like a lot of times there's a lot of games that will like check a bunch of boxes and do everything a, a game in a, in a given genre should do. Yeah. But they won't necessarily be, be memorable, right? Whereas I I like I like the idea game a game of the year list especially if it's a personal one I think is a good time to sort of stake out that position where it's like no like this game despite a lot of flaws a lot of sort of breaks with the the orthodoxy of a given genre damn it this game was special and here's why here's you know here's what here's what I'm gonna stand on uh when when it comes to that game. And that's kind of what I really want to see from, from a game of the year list. Now, what's weird is that I have quite the opposite reaction whenever it comes to a best of all time uh, list. Oh, okay. I will get... All right. Like, <laughs> so PC Gamer used to do, and they, maybe they still do, but they, they would do these uh, top 100 PC games of all time. And every time one of these things came out, I just wanted to burn the building down. <laughs> Uh, whatever building piece of game located in, I wanted to burn it down. Yeah. Because I would sort of look at it and it's like, well, like, for instance, they did one of these lists about like three months after Skyrim came out. And they decided like Skyrim was the third greatest PC game. Of the uh. time. And that shit would drive me crazy. Because I yeah. think when you're talking about this of all time lists, you're sort of obligated, not necessarily to meet some sort of objective criteria, but you do need to have sort of a broader perspective than just the same conversation you had a few weeks ago about what was the best thing of last year. You need to have that broader context. What really, you know, what really changed games, what really was, 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 was great and memorable uh, over the course of all those years. And so I do tend to get, I turn into a real jerk when it comes to those best (laughs) best of all time lists, because I will, I will totally Kanye it, right? I'm totally going to run up there on stage and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> like I am I'm, I'm happy I'm happy for Skyrim, but TIE Fighter's at least the third best PC of all time or something <laughs> like that.
0: Nice. I, I like that. I like that idea. You know, give me the personal, give me the passion for the for the more recent stuff, and then give me the the long view for the the goat game of all time. Oh, that's good stuff. All goaty. Right, right. Goat. G- yeah. Goate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. With that, I think we should go on to our weekend projects. So, Rob, I know you've been reading something lately.
1: Uh, I have. Um, so I just finished reading uh, the latest Dennis Lehane novel, uh, World Gone By. And I don't know. So, you you, you know, you're, you're a Boston girl. Uh, I sure am. Did you ever get into Lehane?
0: I didn't, actually. I can't say that I did.
1: Okay, well. So, World Gone By is the last book of a, I guess you'd call it a trilogy, but it's not really. So, a few years ago, Dennis Lehane wrote a book that was sort of widely considered his first or second real foray into, like, serious literature. Like, Dennis Lehane is a great crime novelist. Um, His, his Kenzie General mysteries are among my favorites. They're all set in Boston. Nice. Uh, he's a great crime fiction noir writer uh Gone baby gone was was based off of uh one of his books and and one of the best series one of the best books in in that series but he wrote this book The Given Day which was about uh the Boston police strike in I think 1919 1920 Lahane generally wrote about like you know Boston Irish uh and one of those memorable yeah. characters in this book is a uh a, a, a black guy who gets sort of caught up in this uh, w- with this this family of Irish cops, uh, but he ends up having his own adventure in uh, I want to say Tulsa, Oklahoma, and begins sort of discovering that there are places you could go in America where, like like black people have managed to carve out their own society and their own culture, and you could almost like feel free and equal uh, in those places. And sort of him trying to work out whether or not he could trust that. Or whether or not it was just sort of an illusion that the people around him were telling themselves was one of the most memorable things in that book. As nice. this guy who's only known uh, really, really entrenched racism suddenly goes to a place where, you know, all the, all, the, all the people around him, all the African-Americans around him are trying to tell him to let go of those instincts because they've got it pretty good here. Uh, so it's this great novel. And it's not really even a mystery. Uh, it's not even really a crime novel, uh, though those things come up. And then he's followed, he's written two follow ups, uh, that take a character that was sort of tangential to the main action in The Given Day, uh, this character named Joe Coughlin, but really they are, uh, period, uh, mob novels, uh, mm-hmm. set in South Florida. And The World Gone By sort of wraps up, wraps up that series. And, you know, it was funny. I was, I was, I was reading it. And on the one hand, I was sort of mourning, uh, the fact that in some ways these are much less ambitious books than The Given Day was. Or even Mr. Griver, uh, which is another one of Lahane's books.
0: Yeah.
1: It's a much more, it's a story about, you know, mafiosi, you know, doing deals, betraying each other, stabbing each other in the back. And so part of me was like, ah, oh, this is so much more, con- more conventional, less interesting. But then all hell breaks loose and it's almost like a Michael Mann movie at that point. And I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> like, like nice. damn, like, when Lahane, like, Lahane knows how to write a damn good crime novel uh with really haunting moments of beauty and uh and and eeriness. Uh and, and so I you know I've I've come out with this book uh you know a, really of two minds in in some ways I I regret that the given day started the saga and it ends up being kind of a by the numbers, uh, mob story on the other hand, you know, by the end it's, it's one hell of a mob story and yeah. uh, a, a pretty affecting morality tale a, as well. Uh, but, but yeah, so that's, that's what I spent the last week reading and, uh, you know, yet another, yet another good, good book from uh Lehane, one of my favorite authors.
0: Oh, fantastic. As soon as I'm done with my uh, EMT training and I have a lot more of sort of reading time for pleasure reading, I'm going to basically go back, listen to every one of these episodes and every book you've recommended <laughs> and actually, you know, tear in a little bit more. Um, I have been primarily just sort of reading medical texts in the last uh, few weeks, so it's a little sad. But I did have a lot of fun watching something that is based on uh, an acclaimed uh, novel or, sorry, series of novels, I have gotten really, really into The Expanse. Oh, lately. man, I've been watching a ton of that. Oh, God, I am I am really, really, really uh, sort of sucked into it. I am really, really enjoying it. So it's a, uh, for those of you who don't know, it's a sci-fi series uh, where sort of the premise is that there is... Uh, Mars has been colonized, the asteroid belt, uh, you know, sort of separating Earth and Mars has been colonized, Um, and Earth obviously has people on it, and there are sort of three different uh, sort of factions of people. People on Earth have, you know, have a lot. They have a lot of resources. People on Mars are a little bit more sort of uh, hard-ass people. The military there is very, very tough, and the folks in the asteroid belt tend to be uh, blue-collar workers, you know, a lot of mining communities and such. And there's drama afoot. These groups of people don't get along very well. The best elements of Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. are, are sort of represented in this. And I actually am getting like a, a, a Farscape vibe from some of it, a Deep Space Nine what? vibe from some of it. Yeah, seriously. No. A little bit. Farscape.
1: No. A little bit,
0: just with the just with the ship of the people who are going out to do the cool thing. I, I don't want to, you know, go too far into it. It's not like full Farscape. It's not as weird as Farscape. Just the. You know the tight knit crew people don't qu- get along, and I'll
1: give I'll give you Firefly maybe. I'm not gonna give you Farscape because there's just not enough weirdness. in Puppets. But there's no
0: Muppets. I know there's no yeah. Muppets. Okay. And it there's nowhere, look near
1: look like like weather. nowhere near yeah, enough Farscape. Nowhere near enough. Yeah, you're right about in this that. Game, in hey,
0: this look, Farscape will always be my favorite. So you know, if I see any hint of Farscape in something, yeah. I'm you know I'm gonna latch onto it. <laughs> of course, there's no Claudia Black either, which is very sad. But you know. So- Nothing's I, perfect.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wanted. I want to talk about this because uh, I, I actually, I, I wasn't sure if I'd put that on the list of, of things we want to talk about or not. Sure, oh, that's uh, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. So the the first the first episode, I, I think, I, I I had to get over the first episode a little bit because <laughs> the first episode I thought was so fascinating because it reminded me so much of the first hour of Alien.
0: Oh, totally. Yeah. So I I will say this: my girlfriend is notorious for starting a series that I you know I only caught the first. I only caught the second half of the first episode, so I missed a little bit of the setup, but then she sort of paused the show, gave me the rundown, and I've been in it ever since. But I... I I totally get that vibe as well. the The whole blue collar workers in space kind of thing is totally there. So yeah,
1: but I was so crushed because the first episode, like he's on this, he's on this like rundown freighter. Yeah, um, and there were all these characters that I kind of wanted to know more about. Right, so there's this one guy whose arm gets like ripped off in a mining accident, (laughs) and the only thing he cares about is whether or not the company is actually going to spring for the sexy prosthetic that he's entitled to based on his time earned. Um, you had just this this fat burnout. Out of a captain uh who collected who collected porcelain cats <laughs> yep um and then an xo who just like gone completely insane uh out like traveling the space lanes for years and the other thing is the entire first episode really reminded me of like um robert altman movies uh sure, so you see so sure, how you know, like yeah, yeah. In, in mash the movie yeah the camera's almost like it's very cinema verite right so like you sure. the camera's almost just like eavesdropping On these conversations and you're watching two or three things happening you're hearing four different conversations all playing over each other that first episode reminded me so much of that and i was like the series is going to be intoxicating yes but then in the pilot episode weirdly like four four or five really memorable and attractive characters who all (laughs) represent (laughs) archetypes get put (laughs) on a spaceship and sent on a mission and somehow I was surprised when they turned out to be the only characters who mattered at the end of that end of that. Shocking. pilot. Yeah. And so yeah. it was kind of it took me a little while to get over uh, my disappointment that, like, some of that really cool blue collar uh, realistic approach in the pilot had, had sort of gone out the window by the end Um but it, it it's won me back a little bit. I still think that detective is a train wreck. I still oh, think Oh yeah. Yeah. And 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 I'm
0: more interested in the world he lives in than his character at all in in the slightest.
1: The hardboiled PI <laughs> um is really a character in a lot of cases that exists in a very particular place and time. Like Chandler, Hammett, yeah, they were stylized, but also if you look at the way people spoke in like the twenties and thirties, like they were still products of that culture. Like people yes. talked differently. Uh, there was, you know, working class people like had a different voice back then than a lot of us have now. Yeah. And the hardwell pi is a product of that. When you transplant him into a si- setting like the expanse, where he's out on this this mining station, where everyone seems to be speaking in a in a like patois of like um like south african uh by way of new orleans uh accent um that character seems so affected and artificial and it kind of drives me crazy him and his him and his stupid trilby yeah um it just (laughs) it makes me a little bit crazy because that character doesn't really exist outside of that setting, which actually was the point of an Altman movie, uh, The Long Goodbye, uh, where sure. Elliot Gould yeah. is playing Philip Marlowe, and it's all about the alienation that character would feel uh, in, in, in a the, modern setting. Yeah. yeah. So uh like I I just have a lot of problems with that character but no I like I don't want to get people down on it. I am I am on board with the series. And I think it's doing a lot of really interesting things. Uh it's 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 a hell of an example of world building. Uh yes. whether or not I think the individual characters succeed.
0: Yeah, it's still certainly early days. Um one other thing I wanted to mention is that it's scratching an itch I didn't even know I had, which was how much I love the movie Outland. It's like an early 80s Sean Connery in space. Basically a western Sort of a similar premise in terms of uh, mining colonies where, you know, people are mistreated for being blue-collar workers, that sort of thing. But it's hitting those notes, and I'm kind of like, man, I, I didn't know I missed Outland so much. But here it is in, in this really awesome little package. Uh, echoing your thoughts, some of the characters are still certainly archetypes at this point. But I have really high hopes because of how how just completely sucked in I am. Whenever there's yep. a new episode, my girlfriend and I get real excited, and we, you know... It's time to make some time for for you know the expanse tonight it's kind well, of cute.
1: <laughs> just and and uh, you know I know we need to wrap it up but I just want to give a shout out to um uh our, our friend Rowan Kaiser is writing at a place called uh, i think inverse.com. Uh, oh, nice. But he wrote this he wrote this story a few weeks ago about how sci-fi is kind of reinventing itself cuz this is a sci-fi series.
0: Yes, yes. And
1: what's weird is sci-fi is abruptly relevant again. I know it's uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah, because they've been total trash.
0: I haven't uh, respected them since Farscape was canceled, and that was more than ten years ago. At this, I point. haven't
1: respected them since they blew away Tom Chicks blog with no warning and destroyed oh, yeah. like five years of his writing work, that was uh, which not is cool. pretty unforgivable from not my standpoint. Cool. But yeah, so so but it's interesting because like uh, Rowan wrote a good analysis of like how and why sci-fi has abruptly done this about face, and it's like <sighs> wait. Wait, like high-minded, like hard sci-fi was good, and people liked that, so we should do that again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So suddenly, this series that's been total trash for years, this this (laughs) channel's been total trash for years, is suddenly home to you know stuff like The Expanse. Uh, Later this month, we've got the Magicians uh, coming. Oh, that's right. Yeah, cool. So it's it's kind of just heartening to see that stuff like this has a place to live on cable again.
0: Totally agree. Totally. Okay, well, I think that is about it. I think it's time for us to go and enjoy our weekends. So this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. Please rate us on iTunes. Please tell your friends. It means the world uh, when you folks actually go out and sort of evangelize for us. Not that you have to wear wristbands that say anything. Just, you know, just tell a friend if you're having fun with the show.
1: You should, you should wear the <laughs> Idol idle Weekend wristband. Uh, it'll be a nice compliment to the Don't Be a Piece of Shit ribband, yep. wristband uh, that we should all be wearing.
0: That's right. You know,
1: Stylish get a, accessory. Get them all on
0: one arm. Yeah, exactly. So you can learn more about the show at idolweekend.net. Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net.
1: And if you've enjoyed this episode of Idle Weekend, you should know that this podcast is sponsored by Audible, a source for fine audiobooks with which to enjoy your Idol Weekend. There are hundreds of thousands of selections on there, including some of our own picks, which in my case this week is World Gone By from Boston-based author Dennis Lehane. You can get a 30-day trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash idleweekend, as well as a book of your choosing to keep. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash idleweekend.
0: And to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idol Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends
1: you ever watch sports night
0: I- i've watched it once or twice yeah
1: no there's just an episode where um that is all about a character having to read Uh, A promo, Uh, and he just has this meltdown in in the recording (laughs) booth uh, as he tries to do it again and again, and it triggers this this psychological break. It's great. Uh, Anyway, here we go.